So don't miss tomorrow, because tomorrow I'm going to go deeper into African religion and these issues of fear. And, but today I want to just lay a foundation, because I think it's important um, just to touch on this issue of culture. And then tomorrow we're going to go a bit deeper. But even now we're going to have questions as well. So I'll speak for a few minutes and I'll open for questions. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31. The book of Leviticus 19, verse 31. Leviticus 19, verse 31. It says, Regard them not that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Do not regard those who have familiar spirits. Those are the ones who consult the dead. Or neither seek after wizards. Those are mediums or witch doctors. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you'll be defiled by them I am the Lord your God. Now, it's interesting that every time in the Bible God addresses an issue of idolatry, whether it's in Exodus or whatever, tends to finish that thought or that sentence with the words, I am the Lord your God. Notice there's a pattern there. This, that, that, you shall not have other gods because I am the Lord your God. Now, when you begin to see and look at that and begin to ask questions, as we should when we are Bible scholars, why does this verse ends, or this thought ends with the words, I am the Lord your God. When you then understand the emphasis of the I am in that sentence, you'll understand why it is not necessary for you to consult witch doctors. Moses asked God a question when he sent them back to Egypt. Who should I say sent me? And God says in Hebrew, I hear, I say, I hear. I am that I am. It meant a blank check. Whatever they need, I am. If they need shelter, I am. If they need water, I am. If they need healing, I am. So in other words, they lack nothing because I am is always there. So therefore, God is saying to us, you don't need to consult witch doctors because whatever you need from them, I am it. So clearly then, people who consult this Sangoma do not know the God who is I am. Not I was, not I will be, but who is I am. So we need to therefore unpack this whole idea of the, the magnitude and the greatness of the God in which we serve. I mean, God, there's over 200 names of God in the Bible, which the translators have omitted to give, to show to us. They've only put the word R-I-D, Lord, in capital letters. So we, we miss out on understanding the different names that God revealed to different people at different stages of life. Elohei Tzidgenu, Elohei Makadesh, Elohei Ra, Elohei Shalom. Elohe, this and that, and revealing their different attributes of God, the aspects of God that defines himself, besides the very personal name of God, which is a four-letter word, what is called tetragrammaton, Y-V-H-V, that reveals a specific attribute, which God used himself to reveal to the people of Israel. 6,800 times the covenant name of God is used in the Bible. And therefore, we don't know who God is, and the word and the term God, people say to me, but I believe in God. And I said to them, no, 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 no. The Bible did not ask you to believe in God because a belief in God is universal. Even demons believe in God, but they're not Christians. The issue is which God you believe in. And in the, mainly is do you believe in Jesus, the Son of God. The belief in God doesn't change a person's life, but it's a following of Jesus that defines in fact, Jesus himself only said twice, believe in me, but only three times he said, follow me. Jesus himself. Only two times he said, believe me. Only three times he said, follow me. So following Jesus is more important than just believing in Jesus. So God expects us to follow his ways of life, not just to believe, I believe in God. No, do you follow the ways of God, not just believing in him? Okay? So there's over 200 different names of God in the Bible, and each and every one of those names revealed a specific attribute, a nature of God, and is so amazing and so immense and so powerful. When we understand the depth of who God is, we'll understand that this is nothing but all these practices are nothing but a, a sideshow to take us away from following God, who is sufficient and supreme, who needs no addition, no help, no assistance. He's given his angels charge over us, plural, angels, as a single, the person you've got angels given charge over you. 
And there's enough angels for each person that's ever lived because angels are innumerable. If they're telling us we're seven billion people and angels cannot be counted, that means there's enough angels for all of us. Therefore, your parent who's dead is not your guardian angel. Because if he is, doesn't mean that angels that were sent to guard you have been retired now. So they go on retirement because there's enough angels to watch over you. Okay? So we have those belief systems which we need to annihilate because they're nothing but lies. So now in Deuteronomy chapter 18, if you can turn there, Deuteronomy 18, verse 9 to verse 12. And words of Moses. Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy. Yeah. There's no school for pronunciation. They say Deuteronomy or Deuteronomy or whatever, you, how you pronounce it. But the fifth book of Moses was put that way. So Moses writes this book. Now this book is very important. History of this book. Moses writes this book at the time he was about to depart from being a leader of the nation of Israel. So he's about to be taken off the scene. God shows him the land of Canaan and says, you won't come in the land. But therefore Moses gives in this book what is called the farewell speeches of Moses. So he says his last sayings. He repeats the Ten Commandments and reminds Israel of their journey with God. Then he says a statement. He says something very powerful, verse 9 to verse 12. When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not land to follow the abominations of those nations. Now, important, those nations are not African nations. They're not Zulus, they're not Tosas, but they're Canaanites, Jebusites, Hivites, Amalekites, a different nation. It says, do not land to follow the abominations of those nations. Then it says, there shall not be found among you anyone that makes his son or daughter pass through the fire or uses divination or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all who do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. So, three times the word abomination is used by God to talk about certain practices that were done in the land of Canaan. What is an abomination? An abomination is something that God hates with extreme hatred. It's something he cannot like. Six things in the Bible says, the book of Proverbs 6. Six things God hates, seven an abomination, and even there begins to list them. So Moses warns the nation of Israel concerning specific practices that God considers to be abominable. And says, do not learn to do these things. Then he names them that there's no ambiguity to what he's talking about. Begins to specify what those things that were done by the Canaanites of old. He tells them what those things are. One of them is he talks about do not let your son or daughter pass over the fire. That was done by the Canaanites in the worship of an idol called Molech. Molech was an idol that the Canaanites worshipped, which was a burning statue with fire on the inside of the statue. So they would put a child in the hands of Molech, and the child would burn slowly in the hands of Molech. While they were doing that, they were beating drums to drown out the cries of the baby in the hands of Molech. That's how evil the Canaanites were. Okay? And obviously also astrology, observer of times, is the term we call the astrology. So there are people today who would say their star sign is Libra or Capricorn or Leo. That's confusion, of course, and it's divination by the stars. Your future is not written in a back of a magazine somewhere. Your future is written in God's word. So stop paging some magazine in the back to find your future. These things, these prognoses are nothing but a lie. They tell you are a positive person. How are the chances that a million people are positive people? Okay, so they're all lying to us. And then there's also the worship of Asherah. Asherah is a female counterpart of Baal. Now the Canaanites worshipped Baal. That was the idol of the Canaanites. In fact, the term cannibalism, the eating of human flesh, is a combination of Canaan and Baal. That's how evil the Canaanites were. In fact, if you look at the Bible properly in Deuteronomy chapter 4, it gives a very strange instruction God gives the Israelites. He asked the Israelites to kill the Canaanites, even to kill nursing infants. God asked the Israelites to basically annihilate the Canaanites from the earth. That's how evil the Canaanites were. God wanted them to be wiped out of the face of the earth. Because they, pra- they practice demon worship. They worship demons. So God didn't want them to be alive. That's amazing. It's, un- it's unusual. Even nursing infants. 
But the Israelites did not kill the Canaanites. They left the land of Canaan and we believe that they take an assumed name called the Phoenicians. And we believe that they entered African continent via Egypt. And they also went to Europe as well, all over the world. They spread, taking their practices with them. So, so Canaanite was at that time the epicenter of idolatry when the nation of Israel was sent to Canaan. In fact, they were sending them there. God sent the nation of Israel specifically to punish the, Israel, the Canaanites for their idolatry. He says, he says, because of these abominations, he drives them out from before you. They're not supposed to intermarry with them. They're not supposed to mix with them. That's how evil they were, that they did. So, and then the Canaanites worshipped Baal. They also worshipped an idol called Asherah. Asherah is worshipped with a totem pole that is erected in the ground. I don't know if you have this same case, but in Eastern Cape, people have these totem poles in their homes with animal horns in them. You may not have it here, but they have it there. You get into your home, and the first thing that greets you is a pole with animal horns on it. That pole is for the worship of Asherah. But the people who do the practice don't know what is hidden behind what they call a cultural practice. Every practice has a deeper aspect to it that is not revealed to those who practice it. There's a deeper element to it. So they don't know that they're worshipping us. In fact, one day, we're interviewing some, some people who were delivered from Satanism and witchcraft. And they tell us that, this, they tell us, when we fly around at night, you may not believe in witchcraft. It's fine if that's where you are at. It's there. You don't have to believe in it. It's just, it's there. <laughs> it's just, it's there. You know, it's just, it's there. So they tell us when they fly around for a human sacrifice to kill a person for that night, they tell us that a house with a totem pole is an inviting target to them because they know he has no divine protection. They knew that. They said that to us. But then they said that when we try to come into the house of a Christian, they say to us that we see fire around the house. I said, what does it fire? I don't see no fire. If you see fire, that's good. I see no fire. I like the idea. Oh, you can't come in. They said, no, we can't come in. They said to us, whatever you guys are doing, keep doing it. Because you can't access your property. It's fire around. And Christians do not know the amount. I mean, God gave the angels. God does not... You don't send fidelity guard or current security here to watch a car without money inside. So you don't have private VIP protection of God for a worthless object. People say, I am nothing, I'm a worm. How can God guard a worm? How can God send angels to watch over nothing? The reason why God watches over you, it tells you your immense value to God. That's why David says, David says, what is man that you're so mindful of him? That means your mind is full of him. What is man? So God gives his angels charge of, and then you go and talk to the dead to watch over you. Insulting God by doing so. Insulting God. Okay? So they worship Asher. Now, let me tell you what's going on in South Africa right now that you may not understand. Even our president, 2012, the 12th month, the 12th president, he was like 12 cows with, with 12 virgins overseeing the ceremony. And number 12 is the number of governance. So they know spiritual numbering, even those who are not of our camp. They manipulate these things for their own benefit. You have no idea the amount of the level of covenants that have been established by some of our, of our rulers. Strong covenants to govern. Very few people would take governance today. Very few would now without going to consult some strong, strong, strong Sangoma. We had the privilege of, of in Mighty Man this year of being visited by the son of Idi Amin. You know Idi Amin? His name is... Yeah. So when I introduced him at Mighty Man, people were like, I said, oh, no, we are safe, we are safe. We're in church. You know, his name is Jaffa Amin, son of Idi Amin. One of his 60 children. 60, 60, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making a mistake. It's 60. Idi Amin had 21 wives. He had 21 wives. So he had 60 children. So Jaffa is, is the only one who came back to Uganda. Others are all in exile because even Idi Amin died in Arabia. So, and then he was with a 
a man from Uganda. That's what, well, we invited this guy to speak, but he came with Jaffa. The man who came was, his name is Bishop, Bishop Joshua Luere. Joshua Luere began to share testimony. And some of you have seen, those of you who watched GLS last year, you would have seen Joshua Luere. The testimony in the Global Leadership Summit of Joshua Luere. And the stuff that happens in Uganda, out of seven presidents of Uganda, all of them, besides the current incumbent, Museveni, have used witchcraft for power. And none of them finished their term of office. So they had to go to Museveni and tell him, you will not finish your term of office, sir, until you repent. Wow. That's the curse in the president. He says, and when he started to want to pray for them to pray for him in his office, they said, no, 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 sir, you must do it publicly because it's already infected the whole nation. So they had to call it a stadium meeting for a public renunciation of witchcraft in Uganda because of one man who stood up. He says, of the 14 kings of Uganda, all of them are using witchcraft. Therefore, now they've reached eight of them already have renounced witchcraft. This man says he goes and, do and does convocations in different tribal places. For four days, he will teach thoroughly on these things. To a degree that after teaching, people will tell him, now help us to reform our culture. Because we thought this was culture. And then you'll have to take and tick boxes. This is not culture, it's witchcraft. And then you have to reform the whole cultural system. Because of one person who stands up. He tells us that when he speaks, they will call a stadium. He will teach in a stadium. Start with the royal councils, the, the king's people and the princesses, and they will teach them. And they will repent. They will bring the whole tribe and they will fill 10,000, 20,000 people in a stadium. And they will teach. And then God will demonstrate and attest to the power of his word. He says, he says that altars of, of witchcraft around the village will burn by themselves. Fire will hit them. People watching, they will see fire hitting altars of darkness. And then Muslims, Imam, would say, Allah does not do this. Maybe we need to follow you, Jesus. We've never seen Allah doing this. Amazing stuff. But this cannot be done, this thing I'm talking about, until the church stands up. It doesn't happen. So we are just a passive church and we follow these things. And part of the why the reason that the devil has managed to deceive us is because, see, with, with apartheid having ruled this country for a long time, it means every time you touch something else of another culture, you're avoiding the issue of imperialism, of being accused of being super. So you step aside. So you keep going, no, no, okay. I don't want to because, they, you know, my skin doesn't, you know, allows me. Well, God had to go around that issue and raise a person like me. Because God doesn't get stuck, you know. <laughs> He's got solutions. So, now, what happens to me when I'm teaching these things? Two things happen to me. One of them is that because of the color of my skin, obviously, I cannot be accused of being racist. But, because people are creative, they will not find, they will not, they will not stop having something to think about. So they will say, the next best thing is that you are in the pocket of white people, you are a white apologetic. apologetic. Otherwise, you know, you're not, yes, you are black, but you're not really black. Because you are just... You are just... You just, you're white inside. <laughs> you're a coconut. <laughs> you're a coconut. Because how can you do these things against us? How, how can you be betray your people like this? They're betraying us. You know, so I'm used to that. I'm used to being accused of that. But my loyalty is to God. Not to my race. I'm loyal to God. And he's raised me. And so... But you notice that academics have always written about this issue of ancestralism. I'm not the first one. But the academics have been white. Legitimacy. Ah, white people. You know, so now people don't know what to say. This young man from PE. He speaks everything we don't want people to talk about. Like, for instance, I'm going to talk about and the last thing I'm talking about. Lobola. Can I do that? Yeah, you can. can I do that? Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave Alan to sort out whatever mess I create here. I'm only here for the weekend. I'm gone. But before I leave, I must slaughter every cow here that remains. So, in the Eastern Cape, I don't know here, cause I don't know, in the Eastern Cape, people are not getting married because of something called lobola. They tell us this thing is supposed to help marriage, but it's actually hindering marriage. 
Because <laughs> I said, think amen there. I think, I think there's something there. And amen is loaded, I think. So, um, now, the idea behind it seemed to have been good in the beginning. They tell us that it was meant to test the worthiness of the man to take care of the woman. But it's completely lost its focus now. It's more commercial than anything. I paid Labola. I didn't know any better. I wish I didn't. I signed a check. <laughs> I wish I didn't really. I paid it. So here we are. And to show to you how irrelevant it is, here I am in Johannesburg with my, with my, my wife's brothers, because her parents have died. So I'm with my wife's brothers so in Johannesburg somewhere, sitting and negotiating this thing with people who are doing well, who don't need my money, but I'm forced to sign a check and hand over to these guys for me to get my wife. Because they are his, they are her brothers. That's because our culture is patriarchal. It's a patriarchal culture. So I paid this level. And so, now, what worthy, how did he prove that I'm a worthy husband? These guys have never come to measure what I'm treating my wife well or not. So for all intents and purposes, I could be abusing everything. They're not even there. But they took the money. And I could have borrowed the money. How can you prove my worthiness? I could have made a loan. I could have made a loan and paid the labor. And we started a deficit in our marriage. A negative. So I paid labor. Are you happy? Okay. You tell me it's not a transaction. It's not a transaction. It's not a transaction. So I said, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I don't know English. Now, if you go there, Put 200 in that basket. Take a book. Say to me, is that a transaction? Dad, I don't know what transaction is. I need to be taught English afresh. So for me, I know I had no wife before. Then I signed a check. Then I had a wife. (laughs) (laughs) If you're telling me it's not a transaction, I don't know what a transaction is. Then I must go and learn English again. Because without the check, I had no wife. So I put a check and I got a wife. <laughs> to me, I find there's something that was exchanged. It looks to me like a transaction. <laughs> something happened then. And so they attempt, it's not a transaction. And part of the issue with Lobola is this. They found it. Now, a lot of people today obviously don't know what they're practicing. They just practice antinuated or changed cultural practices that have been changed. The Labola practice is, is based on the idea of compensating the father of the bride for losing the laboring service of his daughter from the homestead. Because women were labor in the culture. So he would take the Labola and get another wife for himself to replace labor or get a wife for one of his other sons. Because women were labor in the context of the culture. Okay. So, me being very against patriarchy, and I, I've, I've got a daughter and a, and, and a son in my house. I don't practice gender hierarchy in my house. I don't treat my son different to what I treat my daughter, because I don't believe in gender hierarchy. I believe everyone must earn his worth. I don't believe anyone has an automatic seniority based on his gender. So, my son has to prove his worth. It doesn't necessarily mean he's automatically senior because of his gender. So, I tell guys in my church, they look at me, oh, I, say, I will not pay Lobola for my son. Neither will I accept Lobola for my daughter. One, nobody has to compensate me for raising my own daughter. It is my own daughter. It is my responsibility to raise her. And for that, I should not be compensated. Because I can, I've only done what each parent should be doing. I said, on the contrary, when my daughter gets married, I will be paying and giving gifts to them. Because that's the kind of parent I want to be. Now they said to me, but Abraham paid Lobola for Rebecca through Eliezer. Remember the story? I said, oh, clever, clever people. (laughs) Clever. Let's read the Bible in this context. He gave a bridal gift. He did not pay. He gave a gift. Abraham gave a gift through Eliezer. He did not pay a predetermined amount. A gift and a payment are two different things. Yeah. 
So it's not the same thing. Okay? Now, what about Jacob? Seven years he worked for one lady, then seven years he worked for another lady. Good question. Glad you asked that question. If you're asking that question in your mind. In the Bible, you must understand something. There are things that are prescriptive. There are things that are descriptive. In other words, everything in the Bible is correctly recorded. But not everything in the Bible is the correct thing to do. Okay, let me do that again. Judas committed suicide. Correctly recorded. (laughs) Not the correct thing to do. You get my point? David had adultery with Bathsheba. Correctly recorded. Not the correct thing to do. So in the Bible, you check on what is prescribed to you, not what is described to have happened. Very important to read the Bible properly. Because Solomon had 700 wives, described, not prescribed. You hear my point? Because Jesus says in the book of Matthew 19, verse 14, when they asked him about divorce, he then says, but in the beginning it was not so. In the beginning, he made the two to become one flesh. Not the three, he made the two to become one flesh. So he traces marriage not on the example of David, on the example of Moses, on the example of Abraham. He says, in the beginning, pre-sin, pre-fall. That's how you read the Bible. The Bible essentially should be read like this. Genesis 1 and 2 and then break there to understand what you are about to enter in Genesis 3 is a world with sin. Therefore, a distorted model of what God had in mind. And the last, not the second, the last Adam came to undo the mess of the first Adam. Therefore, our model is the first Adam in the garden and the last Adam in the garden of Gethsemane. Those are our models. Therefore, you are following either one of two Adams in the earth. In fact, there are two original men that ever were created. Everybody else is a fake. Only two men were original. It's Adam in the garden and Jesus Christ. Everybody else is either following one of the two Adams. So your culture is either formed in the form similitude of the first Adam or in the similitude of the last Adam. In between, it makes no difference. Abraham makes no difference. Isaac, Elijah, no difference. It's the first Adam and the last Adam. That's why he says, he says, it is written in the law of Moses, but I say, Moses said, but I say. Then he says, you shall be judged by every word I've spoken. That's why people say to me, but Moses and Elijah appeared as ancestors and spoke to Jesus. So, Jesus consulted ancestors. The dead came. Oh, that's interesting. Very clever. People are thinking, people are thinking, eh? They'll ask you very strange questions. And you didn't think about it. I said, that's fine. Let's again read the Bible in this context. One Matthew 17, that's where the scripture is found, Transfiguration, Mount of Transfiguration. They appear, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus and converse with him. Interestingly, he spoke with the dead. Conversation between Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And Peter says, why must we leave that mountain? Let's build three tabernacles for you, Elijah, and Moses. But here's an important fact there. Moses represents the law of the Old Testament. Elijah represents the prophets, the two legs of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is built on the law and the prophets. So the two anchors of the Old Testament are brought out by God. And in their presence, God says, This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. In other words, the phase of Elijah and Moses has ended. A new phase has begun. All truth will now come through this one. Hear him. So if anything, that incident is, discount, is discounting the idea of consulting the dead. He says, consult Jesus. Hear him. Hebrews 3, 1 verse 3 says that. In days past, God spoke to us with fathers of tribes, but in the last days he has spoken to us through his son. So, the last one, 1 Samuel chapter 28. Samuel, the prophet, Saul, consults a witch in Indo. People ask me that. And then Samuel came and spoke to Saul and says, why have you disturbed me? And spoke accurate things. Told him you would die, how the war with the Philistines would pan out. I said, that's fine. 
Let's read the chapters, sorry, the verses in the beginning of that chapter. First of all, Saul consults God. God doesn't speak to him through the Urim, through the dreams, through prophets. Three ways in which God spoke, he did not consult, did not speak to, the, to Saul. And Saul, in desperation, goes and asks his counsel, do you, have a, do you know where the witch is? A witch is supposed to be stoned to death, but they apparently know where the witch is, which means that they probably were consulting him clandestinely, his elders. So they go there, and then they, a, a spirit ascends from the ground. And they ask him, well, how does it look like? And he says, I see an old man. Interestingly, Saul never saw the appearance or the apparition. He only concluded based on the woman's description that it's not say somewhere. What the spirit says does not necessarily mean the spirit is a true appearance of somewhere. Familiar spirits come to you in familiar forms and speak to you familiar things to deceive you. Familiar spirits would not come in unfamiliar forms and speak unfamiliar things because they won't deceive you. They have to come in familiar forms and they must speak familiar things. That's how they deceive you. And the whole continent has been deceived by familiar spirits because they take the face of grandma, the voice of grandma, and say things that grandma would have said. And everybody is taken out astray by that. Let me stop there for questions. Questions? Yes, sir. Good evening. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm just going to ask a question from based on the theme of your book, which is freed by Christ but imprisoned by culture. By culture. How you have done a profound work in terms of defining culture in our context, but then how would you define that freedom in Christ? Because even our definition of freedom in Christ is culturally defined. We define it by our culture. So when I say I'm free in, in, in Christ, to someone may appear that is cultural. So how would you define biblically freedom in Christ? Because I think it's all hanging our understanding of what is freedom before we can also express it in our culture. Sure. That guy is thinking. He's thinking deep. Um, first, the one, before I answer, there's a lady who once asked me a question in PE. She says to me, can I live without culture? I said, no. The interesting thing about culture is that it's impossible to live without it. That's something that you must consider. Because every time you speak a language, every time you eat food, every time you wear clothes, that's culture. So culture is defined by the language we speak, the construction of sentences, and the food we eat, and mannerisms, greetings, facial expressions, many things which we are part of. So either what happens is this, which is normally what happens most of the time. Okay? African people will banish issues of African culture in and replace them with European culture, and they think that they've done well. That's not a solution. But it's difficult. So most, most multiracial churches are not multicultural. Most multiracial are not multicultural. They're dominated still by one culture, even though they're multiracial. Because we don't know what multiculturality means, how to express it. Like in the book of Acts 6, there was an argument between the Greeks and the Jews about setting of tables. Almost split the church. There would have been a Greek church had the apostles not intervened. And it says, appoint seven men to oversee this so that we don't split the church. So it is difficult for us to find that equilibrium between different cultural systems within a local body. So there's likely to be dominance of a specific cultural system. So even Christianity is expressed through a specific culture. It lives within a specific cultural system. To a degree that, to the degree that, I hope it doesn't happen here, to the degree that when there's a mixture, another race lives to find a much more paler church. Because of comfort. And discomfort of mixing. 
That's unfortunate. You know, I've, I've got churches in, in the Eastern Cape when a black person took over, white people left the church. Because they were not led by a black person. It doesn't matter his theology. It's just the color of his skin. So, unfortunately, freedom, therefore you are right, is defined on whose terms is defining the freedom. Okay? So, for me, therefore, I think freedom should be defined by me having the right to take Asian culture, aspects of Asian culture, practice them, aspects of African culture, practice them, aspects of European culture, practice them, without any sense of disloyalty and loyalty or bondage to any culture. Where I can embrace multiculturalism and feel I have no loyalty to anything, I'm just pragmatic, I, I use what works. That's freedom for me. So if I come, I'm like, oh, okay, today we're singing Hillsong. Oh, why not? Are we worshiping God? Beautiful. But that's freedom for me. The fact that if something in Asia works, come. Something in Europe, come. That's, that's freedom for me. The ability to choose whatever thing without feeling that my identity is lost as if it's connected to a specific culture. That will be freedom. I think lack of freedom, therefore, will be finding that I must, I'm bound to follow a one way of life. That's the lack of freedom. Freedom should be the ability to choose. Okay, I choose. Therefore, if a person has no right, lacks the ability to choose, I think they have lacked freedom. The ability to choose, even choose wrongly, that's freedom. That's freedom. So I think God has given us free choice, free will. And I think the ability to make that choice and without being hindered and having consequences from other people's accusations and criticism, I think that's freedom. So, so therefore, the fact that we can mix cultures and take Ubuntu and take this and take that and take that means we are free. To do that. When we don't do that or we're not free to do that, then it means we're not free. So I think that a lot of Christians are not free yet. We're not free yet. Because um, they don't have the ability to choose and be confident that they've done the right thing because they always be concerned about other people's opinions, what they think. Thank you. Good question. I think there was another one. Yes. I think I'm answered already. Okay. <laughs> it's answered already. Anybody else? Yes, there's a lady. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we. Are, I understand what you're saying. We are free to, to choose what works, but carefully. Yeah. No. Yeah. Because the, so much of what is done in various cultures, is actually tied to a religious system, that's unseen. But there are, for me, I believe that the values of the kingdom of God. I, I believe the kingdom of God is or has a culture. There is a culture of the kingdom of God. Uh, I believe that the kingdom of God is a visible phenomenon, and it should be seen in us here, because our value, our values, no matter whether we're white or Asian or whatever we are, our values are still the values of the kingdom of God. Jesus teaches us how to live, how to treat people. Um, it doesn't matter whether I eat uh, putu or insima or whatever, um, <laughs> that I'm free. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, but sometimes I need to be careful of the pot it's cooked in or the yeah. whatever. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's right. But I think the, the issue is that um, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a theoretical part of this, the idealistic part. And then there's the practical part where there's an ideal world where we should just you know, be Christians and all that. But in practice, in practice, we use certain material objects that are either strongly defined by one or the other culture. And so it's the issue of knowing, you know, because we define civilization on whose terms, for instance. We, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, Africa was uncivilized when, we, when African Europeans came here. We were guys who stayed in the bush and we were wearing animal loins and, and we civilized you. Essentially, that's what it says which is most of it is historically inaccurate and it's, re, it's revisionism or a selective interpretation of history. It doesn't talk about the civilization in Egypt and the pyramids of Giza, which were built by, Europe, by Egyptians without an architecture, and they're still standing thousands of years later. It doesn't talk about Mali, the Timbuktu. It doesn't talk about Mapungu, where the civilization that was there in Limpombo. So, so even so-called progress is defined on specific linear terms based on somebody's culture who thinks progress is what his culture does. That's progress. And this one is lack of progress. Okay. So, therefore, we have to then interrogate 
the terms that we define or we use to articulate this view. So, in Christ, yes. What we should be loyal to, we are not there yet. We should be loyal to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, if it is much more meaningful to spread the gospel through storytelling, we should not say storytelling is wasting our time. If that's the instrument that God is using in Africa, we should be taking that and using it. Even if we're not part of our culture, we should learn it for the sake of the gospel and be like Paul to, to, to I become all things to all men that I may win some. To the Jew, I become a Jew, the Gentile, I become a Gentile. If we do that, if our most, if the main thing that motivates us is Christ and Christ alone, therefore, we'll come amongst these poor people and be poor amongst them. Not for the sake of we are against material, but for the sake of their soul. And we time and take them out. But often we take them out of that to our culture. And we think our culture is Christianity. So we make them wear our clothes because we think our clothes define Christianity. And we make them speak our language because we think our language is more Christian than their language. Those are the things. So we still have prejudice in our minds, even as preachers of the gospel. I preach from a specific prejudice. I'm not free of prejudice myself. I'm working my own salvation with fear and trembling in that area of prejudice. So I think it's right. Ideally, we should. Let's yearn for it. Yeah, but not yet. You know, direct me Thank you. Somebody else. There's someone there. Uh, there was a question asked, how do you see someone who's racist? How do you see someone who's racist? You don't always see someone who's racist <laughs> until he does something visible. Um, J. Elge Oldman wrote a book in 1925, Christianity and the Race Problem. He made a statement. He said that white man's claim to superiority is sometimes blatantly proclaimed, but more often quietly taken for granted. White man's claim to superiority is sometimes blatantly proclaimed, but more often quietly taken for granted. So you will see if a person acts out superiority, but there are many who would not act out in a visible form, but believe it in a private form. And in the spaces of their kind, they will express it, but outside they will keep themselves shut. So I wouldn't therefore want to go and hunt for visible signs of racism and... (laughs) and be hunting. Otherwise, my life will not function. <laughs> Let's find the racist. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Any other? There's a, there's a, okay, there's a question, then we come here. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to know, um, how do I go about, if my family practices all this cultural stuff, and then I'm Christian, how, how do, because they normally, if you go against this, they normally say, uh, the Bible said you should respect your parents. Uh, so you, 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 will, you will sort of like be forced to follow what they say. And also, question number two, how do I go about also about the Lobola issue? I, I, I have a girlfriend. That, that amen, that, that loud amen. I think that was coming from that side. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's an example. I don't have a girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. How, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. <laughs> so, so, yeah, um, let's say I have a girlfriend. Let's say I have a girlfriend. <laughs> let's speak hypothetical. Yeah, 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 that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Then, my girlfriend is Christian, yeah. but the parents aren't. Yeah. So, um, then she will tell me, my parents was Lobola. Yeah. How also do I go about with that? Yeah. Uh, firstly, um, I, I think most of you would know, Afghan culture is, is a rank culture. In other words, uh, your rank, you must know your rank. And in African culture, a child is wrong, an adult is right. Automatic. Before we even speak, we don't even go to, to hear you. Just as you come, you come in as a child, you are wrong. Just as you come in, you are wrong. <laughs> you have not even said anything. <laughs> so he is wrong. He's wrong. He's just wrong because he's a child. He's just wrong. Before he even says what he wants to say. So, now they use Exodus 20, you might honor your mother and father. But then I ask you a question. Your same parent who says to you, honor your mother and father, if he says to you, kill this lady, will you kill her? He says, honor me, I ask you, I command you, step into death, will you do it? 
No, why won't you do it? Because the Bible says that's an orkia. So you understand that the commandment honor your mother and father is not unconditional. It applies, then it has breaks in as far as it dishonors God. It ends its power. So the honoring your mother and father is not an unconditional commandment. It's not an open-ended commandment. It is not superior to I am the Lord your God. You have no other gods before me. That is superior. That's why the Ten Commandments, the first four are about God's relationship with him and the last six are about relationship with human beings. Because that's where it starts first. If it's not well here, it won't be well here. That's the first thing. So, you explain to them what the Bible says properly in context, not they're taken out of context stories. And second point you must understand, let's all, let's all embrace this. At the end of the day, Jesus said to himself, I have not come to bring peace. I've come to bring sword. I've come to bring conflict between father and son. So, the Bible did tell us that in my name they shall persecute you. We don't want persecution. We want everybody to be our friends. Go to a Muslim and ask him what it means to become a Christian. Death. We are just afraid of somebody chasing us out of their house. Somebody have died. Listen, we would not be sitting here today with the gospel saved if nobody paid the ultimate price to bring it to us. With Nero burning them in the stake, sending them to animals, that's why we are saved. You must pay a price for following Jesus. There's no way. There's no, there's no way around it. Following Jesus is costly. The, even the cost of your own life. That's how Peter was crucified upside down. That's how John was burnt in a boiling oil of, of oil. Almost all the apostles died painful deaths. But they did not renounce Christ. They did not deny Jesus. Even though they were told, we'll leave you, we'll let you live, just deny Christ. It says, no. How can we deny what we've seen and heard? So there must be a price that they're prepared to pay. Now, most people, um, uh, like him, he's working, he's working at a spa, right? I can see your jacket. <laughs> most guys are like this. They are of age already. But the control of parents is the degree that your age is of no significance. In other words, you're never an adult. You remain a perpetual child. By your own permission, None is forced. There's no gun in your head by your own permission. If they chase you out of the house, it's time you leave the house. By time. Maybe there's an announcement in the street. Maybe it's a sign that, oh, I am 27. I should have left the house like <laughs> six years ago. I should have left my house now. That's why, why am I still here? So a lot of guys in my theater, in my church, they come to me in their 30s. My mother said, how old are you when you're 30? I said, why are you still staying with your mother? <laughs> like, like, what happened? What happened to life? Like, like life happens. Like, then you pass. Then life happens. Then you buy a house. What happened to life? At age 30. You should be staying there in the first place. They have a right to control you because after all, you'll become an adult. You are a child yourself. So at the same time, we must question. The, this this our upbringing. But the Bible says, the last point, the Bible says, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. So there's no cleaving without leaving. So you must first leave to cleave. It's called a unilocal residence system. Ours is called patrilocal residence system, staying with the, our parents, staying with the husband's family. Other cultures are matrilocal residence system. Unilocal means both leave and cleave to start a new family. For the Lord, Malachi 2.15, he has made the two to become one flesh to obtain a godly offspring for himself. He even says, the fruit of the womb is mine. Our parents will take our babies, dedicate them to ancestors. When God says, the one that breaks the matrix of the womb, the first fruit is mine. So God says, I even own the fruit of the womb. Our parents don't even own our children. God owns our children. We are only stewards to raise them on God's behalf. But they want to dedicate ancestors, they want to give them names of silly grandfather who died a long time ago. No, we must refuse. We must refuse because we will account to God for our children, not to a council of parents or elders or tribes. Thank you. Oh, I think we have finished. Anybody questions? No? We're here tomorrow. Oh, upstairs.
upper room. <laughs> There's a question in the upper room. Yeah, last question. Tomorrow we're starting at 9, Alan. Eh? We're going to go for it. Yes, ma'am. Um, hi, everyone. Hi. <laughs> um, this, this question that I have is actually based on, um, on the church. We are the church yeah. of Christ. So um, my question is based on um, um, culture and the church. Yeah. Um, I've heard so many times whenever I would ask something and say, um, can I please um, do things this way? And they're like, no, in the name of, uh, um, in, in our church, we don't do things this way. This is how we do things. And sometimes it's based on the Holy Spirit wants to do something or bring a certain change in the church or a certain vibe because we don't even know how, how worship in heaven is like. Probably it's just the Holy Spirit wants to give us a taste of heaven at that moment. But you actually can't do it because this is how the church do things. Okay. So, yeah, thank you. Well, each church has its own culture. That's how deep culture is. Companies have culture. Culture is everywhere. So unfortunately, there will be restrictions. Because each church has its own culture. And of course, we as pastors, please don't forget, we have had some silly people doing silly things in the name of the Holy Spirit. So, so we have had to be cautious of people who come in the name of the Holy Spirit. We have seen some silly things. Re- and well-intentioned. Wrong, but sincerely wrong, but still wrong. <laughs> so, so we have had to be cautious. That's why we have these rules. We don't have rules to quench the Holy Spirit. We have rules to guide mankind. Not to guide the Holy Spirit, but to guide those who prepare to speak on His name. If everyone was hearing the Holy Spirit directly, in fact, we wouldn't even need pastors in the pulpit. The reality is this. I won't even be teaching you today if we all had the Holy Spirit directly on a single day. So the reason why we have leadership is because we need to be led. So, therefore, unfortunately, but other churches, of course, are more restrictive than others, which then talks to your choice of a church. Not you changing the church, because you may not have the power to do so. You might say, man, I've been here for a long time. Anything, nothing changing here. And then I might need to pick up my bags and, and go where there's freedom. You know? So I think at some point, a person must be practical. They only do so much and realize that there's nothing I can do any further here. This thing is rigid. It's been here for a thousand years. It's an ancient of days. You know? So I think at some time, I think must be practical and, and accept that some denominations are just not going to change until revival. We pray. And I think we must also embrace the fact that some things need to be prayed for, not confronted. Sometimes I think we are quick to confront instead of being quick to care for it and to love. So sometimes we must pray and love them and maybe God sent us there to be the prayer engine to light the fire underneath the pastor so that he just... <laughs> 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 <laughs>